how would you describe some of the greatest stories in your life? I love telling stories. I consider myself a decent storyteller, and we joke as a staff, but there are many things in my life that seem to only happen to me. Right? Like anytime I go to the dentist, anytime I go get an oil change, Jonathan, our worship minister, he always texts me, he's like, okay, so what happened? Something obviously happened, right? And chances are something did happen, right? The last time I was at the dentist, I was like the only person that they couldn't get a temporary crown off their tooth. It took four people to come in and remove this crown that was supposed to just pop right off, right? But not with me. That's not how it works, right? Uh, I'm a football fan. Any other extreme football fans? Okay. I love this weekend. This is wild card weekend. I've explained probably to 10 different people already this morning the Jacksonville game that happened last night. It was amazing. One of the greatest football games. And I don't like Jacksonville. But I found myself, if, if you're not a football fan and you're like, I don't know what's going on, they were down like 24 to nothing. 27 to nothing. They were down 64 to nothing at the half. That's right. Yeah, that was a whole different thing. Yeah, they were down at the half. They come back. I mean, some of you probably were like, I'm just going to go to bed, not me. I'm like, no, I'm in this. And so they come in, and, and believe it or not, they won the game. And it was amazing. They won it at the very last second with a field goal. They won by one. It was incredible. And I've told like 10 different people that story. But for you, how would you describe some of your favorite stories in your life? How would you describe some of the, the best experiences that you look fondly to? Those stories that you find yourself retelling over and over, the stories that maybe your spouse is like, oh, he's going for this one again, right? <laughs> but now flip that, not to Jesus Jukas, but I'm going to Jesus Jukas here. How would you describe the story of Jesus? Now think about that for, for a second. Really spend some time sitting in that just for a moment this morning. To somebody who has never heard the message of the gospel, how would you describe Jesus? What words would you use? What picture would you try to paint for them? What, what stories from the gospel would you bring in? What experiences that you've personally experienced in your life would you add in? How would you describe, how would you paint this portrait of Jesus to somebody that has never heard it before? Now, what's beautiful about that question, I asked several different people this week, and I never got the same answer. Because what's beautiful about that question is there are so many different perspectives and different experiences of how we have encountered Jesus and the message of the gospel. But we also have to acknowledge that there's a challenge that lies at the center of that question. There's a difficulty that sometimes we uh, have to confront, and that's this, that if we were to stand in front of our portrait of Jesus, right, our painting of Jesus, what are the things that we left out? And why did we leave them out? Because as we've already seen, even in the first three chapters of Mark, that there are things about Jesus 
that confuse us. There are things about the gospel that are complicated for us. There are things that we simply don't understand. Maybe we're just uncomfortable with. Or maybe there are parts that we just reject completely. And so we leave those out because we don't know what to do with them. And the reason that I ask that question, the reason why I want our minds kind of thinking along those lines this morning is in our passage this morning, we have two groups of people, two very different groups of people that are each painting a portrait of Jesus and are struggling to grasp the complexities, the completeness of who he is. And so let's read our passage this morning, Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20. It says this, Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he couldn't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out and they seized him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Don't worry, we're going to get there. <laughs> For they were saying he has an unclean spirit, verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and they were standing outside, and they sent to him, and they called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mothers and your brothers are outside, and they're seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother? Who are my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So already in Mark's gospel, we have several uh, different vignettes or different descriptions, different perspectives of who Jesus is that are all coming together to give us a more complete picture. He's been described so far as the great physician. We've seen him as uh, the great deliverer, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who comes in authority. But now we get to a passage, a description that's maybe a little harder for us to describe, a little harder for us to grasp, to process. Because if I'm honest, this is one of those passages that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. When Brian and I were sitting down planning out the preaching schedule for Mark, I was like, oh, cool. Right? I get that one. That's, that's good. But because, right, we don't know what to do with this. And so let's break it down because it's important as we read through to read these passages in Mark uh, kind of is happening one after another, right? This is the story of Jesus. This is what's happening. And even though we have these divisions, right, these headings in the Bible, uh, sometimes those can uh, maybe make things a little more complicated. And so um, what's happening is right after the other, that in verse 20 we see Jesus returns home, most likely to his home base of Capernaum. And before he can even eat, 
a crowd has already gathered at the house. It's going to show you how word about him is spreading, how uh, popular he's becoming, that people are coming from all around. They're crowding wherever he is to hear and to see what he's going to do next. And even in that, what I love about him is what does Jesus do in that moment? Does he say, hey guys, let me eat my sandwich first and then I'll come and teach you? No. He steps out of the house and he begins to teach again because that's who he is. He's moved with compassion. He's moved with the love for the people who are around him with a willingness to serve, not to serve himself, but to serve others that he steps out of the house and he begins to teach. And what we have in this passage is we have two kind of confrontations that are coming to the surface, both from different places, both handled differently. And so let's break these down. The first one we see is there's an accusation from Jesus's family that happens. Verse 21, it says that when Jesus' family heard it, they went out and and they tried to seize him, and they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now, if I could guess, I think probably what's happening uh, here with Jesus' family is there's becoming this really dramatic shift for them. A lot of times we don't put ourselves in his family's perspective, but try to do that just for a second this morning. Jesus, over the last, you know, however long it's been, has been uh, going out and he's been living a different life than the first, you know, 30 years of, of his life. He's been going out, he's been teaching, we've seen miracles, and that's probably a lot for his family to process. Like, just to be honest, right? But I don't even think that's the part that they're struggling with. I think what's happening now is now they're getting afraid because they're seeing the conflict that is starting to happen. Jesus is ruffling feathers that most people in this age don't want to ruffle. And maybe there's part of it too that's like, okay, he actually believes what people are saying about him. There are people that are calling him Lord, that are calling him the Savior, the Redeemer of Israel, that are calling him the great physician, the great deliverer, the Lord of the Sabbath, and he believes it. And maybe there's part of him that's like, okay, that was, that was cool, and, and we like that when it was kind of closer, but now it seems like it's getting out of hand. Uh, let me try to demonstrate it this way. Follow me here for just a second. My oldest daughter, Grayson, she's eight years old. And last Halloween, you know, my wife, bless her heart, she, for whatever reason, decides every year at Halloween she's going to make the kids' costumes. And so Grayson said, hey, I want to be a fox. So Diana made her this awesome fox costume. I don't know how things were for you growing up, but in my house, it was understood that, hey, once Halloween is over, you're not a fox anymore. We're in almost February. We're halfway through January. Grayson has worn that fox costume probably 80% of the days from Halloween till now. And that's fine. I'm good with that. Now she's wanting to wear it to school. 
And I'm like, okay, let's just take a time out for just a second. Maybe no. <laughs> right? Like, like maybe we don't want to become the, the girl that wears the fox costume to school. I'm just spitballing here, right? This is just dinner. This is dinner time talk, right? Like, let's just process through the repercussions of this together, right? But ultimately, you know, I'm like, hey, she's eight years old. This is like, she's, she's our creative child. She loves kind of that pretend world, whatever. This is great now. Let's fast forward 10 years. Grayson's getting ready for her high school graduation. She comes downstairs. She's wearing a fox costume. <laughs> I would like to say, as a dad, I would probably say, nope. Not, not today, right? But there comes a point, right, for me that's like, hey, maybe it's time to put the fox costume away. And I think maybe there's part of that with Jesus' family that's happening is, hey, maybe it's time to dial back the things that you're saying, the things that you're doing. Because people are talking. People are, are getting angry. Like, out of fear for him, they're, they're working this crowd saying, hey, no, 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 he's just crazy. He, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And in some ways, I think what's happening is that his family can no longer deny his authority. And so they have to contain it. Now process that for you for a second. At some point in our walk with Jesus, in our journey with Jesus, his authority in our lives gets hard to ignore. What do we do? For many of us, we can point back to areas of our life where we said, I tried to contain it. I, there were parts of Jesus' authority that I would submit to, and then there were other parts that I wouldn't. And I would find a reason why I didn't have to submit to that part. Right? The world is different now than it was then. We live in a different time. If Jesus were here now... In 2023, in O'Fallon, Missouri, he wouldn't come in that same kind of authority. It would look different. You try to contain it because you don't know what to do with it. You're afraid of it. You're afraid of what may happen if you allow yourselves to fully submit and to bow to the authority of Jesus. And so the question becomes... When you realize that that doesn't work, what do you do? There's another group of people that we see in this passage that has the same problem, but goes about it in a different way. We see an accusation come from the scribes next, kind of the religious leaders who are in this crowd. Verse 22 says, and the scribes came down from Jerusalem. Now, don't miss that, because they're not just hanging out up in northern Galilee where Jesus is, they've come from Jerusalem. 
to try to do something about Jesus. So the, the, the scribes come down from Jerusalem, and they said, he's possessed. He's possessed not just by a demon. He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. And it's in that authority that he casts out demons. So here's what's going on. The power of Jesus up to this point has started to become so obvious that they can't deny it anymore. They can't play it away anymore. They tried for a while. Like, oh, that's, what you saw happen didn't really happen the way that you thought it happened. Right? Well, now they can't do that, so they have to think of something else. And so my guess is there was some sort of meeting that happened in Jerusalem where they said, hey, what do we do? And somebody raised their hand and said, I got it. He's possessed by Satan. Okay. And so this group of scribes, they come from Jerusalem to where Jesus is, and they start spreading that message to try to water down what Jesus is doing, to try to turn the crowd in a different direction. And I think what's happening here is the same thing that happened with Jesus' family, is that when, when the scribes, when the Pharisees, when the religious leaders couldn't deny the power of Jesus anymore, they said, hey, we have to control it. We have to control the narrative. We have to write the story. Because what he's doing is making us uncomfortable. It's making our way of life, it's threatening our way of life. We have to control it somehow. And so here's how they try to control it. They come up with this argument. But what I love is Jesus has no problem destroying this argument in two seconds. And I got to think that at some point they're like, man, it took us like a two-hour meeting to come up with this argument. And not one of you guys said, hey, what if he says this? Because here's what Jesus says. First, he attacks their logic. And he says to them, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house won't stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and he's divided, he can't stand. His kingdom is coming to an end. And that completely shatters what these religious leaders thought they had. And Jesus, at that point, could just go back teaching and not say any more about it. But he doesn't. And I love it. Because what he says next is one of the most important things that we can hear. He proclaims the truth. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Church, this is one of the most powerful, hope-filled messages in the gospel. Because here's what Jesus is saying. I have invaded the house of Satan. I've broken down his door. I have emerged as the stronger one. 
And not only that, I've bound him up. And now I can take what I want. And what I want is you. Let that sink in for a second. Go back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What happens? After he's baptized, he's taken into the wilderness where he spends 40 days. And what happens in those 40 days? He's tempted. He's tested by Satan himself. And who emerges victorious? Jesus. From the very beginning, Jesus proved himself to be the stronger one, and now he is declaring it in front of everybody. And he's saying, actually, Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. But it's not because Satan is divided against himself. It's because the stronger one is here and has bound him and is now plundering his house. And the same thing that happened in the wilderness is going to happen at the tomb when Jesus again emerges and says, see, I am the stronger one. Then we get to a passage that's hard to ignore. Verse 28 through 30 says this, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So unfortunately, this passage has been mishandled and misinterpreted for a long time. And I know that because I've had many conversations with people that have come to me and said, hey, um, one quick question. What's the unforgivable sin? And have I done that? <laughs> so let's break this down for just a second. I would say a couple things to this, just judging from the context of what's happening. Most likely, you have committed it. Now, some of you are like, I'm going to need you to say more. <laughs> because here's what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about is there are people that have a clear-minded, blatant rejection of the gospel. They completely reject the work of the Holy Spirit. They completely reject what Jesus has come to offer. And this is what Jesus is referring to. Those people that blatantly live in this pattern of rejection of the message of the gospel, they cannot have forgiveness. I want to make a very important distinction here. Jesus isn't talking about when we struggle with doubt. That's a different thing. You can live in faith. You can walk with Jesus. I, I struggle. There are times where I'm like, oh, man, I'm really having a hard time 
believing some of the, the things that Jesus said, right? It's, it's what Paul prays, right? I believe, but help my unbelief, right? There, there are things that we struggle with. There are things that we at times doubt that we have to wrestle through. That's good. That's healthy. We should process through those. What Jesus is talking about is a willing rejection that he can save you from your sin. And I won't speak for you, but there, are, there, were, there was a time in my life where that's how I lived. I knew what the gospel said. I knew the message of Jesus but I willingly and openly rejected it. And I believe in that phase of my life, I was living in blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But where people oftentimes take this is that if you live there, there's no hope for you, which is not what he's saying. Let me take you to a verse, John chapter 14, verse 6. It's one that you've probably heard many times. Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus is referencing is saying that blatant rejection of who he is and what he offers is the one sin that the cross will not cover. So have some of us been there? Probably. Does that mean we're hopeless? Absolutely not. Jesus is reinforcing, I am the stronger one. Apart from me, there is no life. Apart from me, there is no hope. Apart from me, there is no forgiveness. There is no healing. There is no restoration. So come to me. brings us to our third point this morning. And that's a proclamation that Jesus then makes. There's a very moving scene at the end of this passage, and Jesus is told that his family is outside, and, and they've spent the last, you know, how, however long going through the crowd. They're trying to, what we talked about earlier, right? They're trying to contain him, maybe to, to try to save him trying to convince people that he's out of his mind, that he's crazy. And Jesus hears that his family's outside, his mother, his brothers are looking for him. And what does he say? He answered, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And why I say that this is such a moving passage, because it's in this statement that Jesus is declaring what we've been talking about all along, that he has all control of your life. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. That he is not bound by anything else. He is not bound by DNA he is not bound by the rumors that are trying to be spread about him. He is not bound by the portraits that we try to create. He is in control. He is the stronger one. He is the one 
who brings life. And church, I feel like that as long as we try to contain him and control him, what we very quickly begin to realize is that we'll always feel stuck in life. We'll always find ourselves coming back to this feeling of hopelessness, of fear, of anger, of anxiety, of frustration, of struggle. But when we look at the words of Jesus and we heed his message to bow to his control, to bow to who he is, when we receive his gracious invitation to be adopted into his family, and when we acknowledge that we also receive those who have been adopted into his family, then we find that we have life and life abundantly. And so I ask you this morning, what do you do with Jesus? If you're here this morning and you haven't accepted the message of the gospel, I would say this to you, that Jesus is the only source of hope. Jesus is the only giver of life, the only place where forgiveness is found, the only place where we can find rest. And if you're a believer this morning, I would ask you, are there parts of Jesus that you still struggle, that you still try to leave out because you don't know what to do with them? For you, maybe, maybe it's time that you start uh, treating Jesus as who he is and not as your drinking buddy. Maybe it's time you start seeing Jesus as Lord and not Santa. Maybe, maybe it's time that you start seeing Jesus as the giver of life and not the motivational speaker where you take what you like to hear. And though we all still struggle with doubt, maybe we just enter into prayer of saying, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because if there's one thing that he's shown us in all three of these chapters of Mark, it's this, that he will not be contained. He cannot be controlled because he is the sovereign Lord who has bound up the evil one and has come to make all things new. Let's pray. God and Father, we thank you, God, for who you are. God, for what you've done for us, God, that you have shown us, you've proven to us through your words, through your actions, God, that you are the stronger one. God, that you are the one who came to give life and life abundantly to save to offer forgiveness. God, that there is nothing outside of your control. And so, God, I pray for us as we wrestle with what does that mean for us in our lives? Where are the areas, God, that we still struggle to submit fully to you? Where we still try to control the narrative, where we still try to contain your power 
to offer you parts of our lives, but to hold back others. God, what does it look like for us to fully come? To fully give it all. To fully lay it down before you. Knowing that you've offered us something even greater. That you've plundered the house of the evil one. You've taken what you wanted, and that's us. So God, might we not live as those that are still bound by sin, but might we live as those that have been raised in the newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen.